On Making Waves this week, I'm talking to Dr. Jason Kane, developmental cancer biologist at the Hudson Institute Center for Cancer Research in Melbourne. Jason has had an impressive career in pediatric brain cancer research and recently has been involved in a project we are funding, the Elfie Chivers CRISPR Project, identifying new therapeutic opportunities utilizing global collaboration. This is a derivative of the genome sequencing technique. It sounds complicated, and it is, but Jason breaks it down in a way we can all understand. Let's dive in. Don't worry about a thing. Hello. I'd like to welcome our watchers and listeners back to our new series called Making Waves, where we're doing an in-depth conversation with researchers that we're funding, supporting, that can shed some light on pediatric brain cancer and the complexities within it, but hopefully breaking that down in a way that uh, people can make some sense out of. And I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Jason Kane with us today. Welcome, Jason. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for having me. Well, it's it's a delight to have you. And I've, I've got your bio uh, up Hold on, let's see if I can. Uh, I'm just gonna read this straight off of the Hudson Institute website and you can elaborate on it. Jason is the head of the department in cancer biology research group in the Hudson Institute Center for Cancer Research. And you're a chief investigator for the Hudson Monash Pediatric Precision Medicine Program. Okay, well, that's quite a mouthful in and of itself. Um, would you mind giving our listeners and, and watchers just a little bit of your background and how you got to where you are now? I'd love to. Um, I'll try not to uh, bore you with too many details. But um, so, as you said, I'm a research group head um, and the lab I run at in the Centre for Cancer Research at the Hudson Institute is the Developmental and Cancer Biology Lab. So our main focus is on uh, childhood solid tumours and a large majority of that is in childhood brain cancer. Um, so I got to this position through, um, through a bit of a journey. Um, so I'm Melbourne born and bred, uh, educated in Melbourne, went to university at Monash University um, and my PhD was also at Monash, but it was actually in developmental biology, not in cancer biology, um, and in kidney development, of all things. Um, and I undertook that with a really terrific mentor um, uh, at Monash, uh, Prof uh, Professor John Bertram. Um, after my PhD, I wanted to undertake a, a postdoc overseas and was fortunate enough to get a position at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada. Um, which I loved, um, amazing place, um, Toronto and Canada. And again, this was really in developmental biology. Um, and my mentor, uh, Dr. Norman Rosenblum, was actually a paediatric nephrologist uh, at the hospital. So again, I was in uh, working with, with kidneys. Um, but within my centre or department at SickKids, um, it was quite a diverse range of um, researchers and clinicians and, and research activities. Um, and someone you know, Liz, uh, Michael Taylor, had a lab in my centre. Um, and this was, this was uh, mid-2000s, mid so 2006. Um, 
And at that stage, uh, so my, for those who don't know, Michael Taylor is a uh, paediatric neurosurgeon at SickKids uh, in Toronto. Um, and he was really just starting to, to gain momentum in his medulloblastoma program, along with his PhD student at the time, Paul Northcote. Um, and so I was able to see the development and evolution of all of their research in medulloblastoma, um, which ultimately has revolutionised not only medulloblastoma, but paediatric brain tumour, um, understanding of the fact that it's not just one tumour or one tumour uh, type, but multiple molecular subtypes of the tumour. And, and really, over the last 15 years, that has um, been one of the biggest developments in the field. Um, and so at the time, I was so fascinated by this, and I thought to myself, I can't, I can't think or I wasn't aware of anyone in Australia doing um, that kind of research and, um, and even work really in, in, in paediatric um, solid tumours. And so um, as I was looking to return home, I was fortuitously introduced to a, um, a Professor Neil Watkins who had just relocated to the Monash Institute of Medical Research, which is now called the Hudson. Um, and he had come from Johns Hopkins. So he's an Australian who uh, was at Johns Hopkins for a while and was returning uh, back to Australia. Now he was primarily interested in lung cancer. So that was kind of quite far removed from my expertise and probably where I wanted to go. Um, but he had an amazing track record, coincidentally in medulloblastoma. And so we got talking and we had a lot of common interests in research. Um, and he was really interested in helping develop a, a paediatric research program. So ultimately, uh, when I returned to Australia, uh, Neil and I developed um, the program that currently exists in my lab. Um, and so that's kind of how I ended up to where I am now. So uh, I consider myself a, a developmental biologist slash cancer biologist. Um, and I like to use developmental biology techniques to, to study cancer and I think that's a really good fit for trying to understand our childhood cancers. Oh great and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask a few questions to hopefully help people understand uh, sort of your role versus a clinical oncologist versus clinical trials um, but before we get into that obviously we're talking remotely as everybody is these days uh, and hopefully we'll see some of that loosening here in australia in the next couple of weeks because australia has done really well but how have you found now it's been several weeks how how's it been going for you and what's happened with your work and what's happening within your lab yeah so i think as with most institutes around the whole world we're in shutdown at the moment um, as you said, hopefully that will begin to loosen as of next week um, in, uh, you know, in a staggered, a staggered way. Um, so essentially all of my lab has been working from home. Um, we have had some very limited access into the lab for essential work. So that is uh, any um, ongoing um, animal experimentation or um, really critical uh, patient derived cell lines that we we need to maintain um, otherwise they'd be lost so we we have been able to tick some things along but essentially it's it's come to a little bit of a halt in the lab um, but that hasn't necessarily been a a bad thing because this last 
four weeks or so has really given us some time to analyse data that we hadn't quite had the time to do. Think about forward planning, about, you know, what are our priorities moving forward? What are the really important experiments we need to do? Uh, write papers. We've been doing that. And, of course, applying for grants. So we've been very, very busy uh, at home. And, um, and as we're doing now, Liz, we've been keeping in contact with, uh, you know, my lab meetings continue. I, ha- I continue to have individual meetings with my staff and all of our uh, really important collaborative research meetings with local and national and international collaborators have all continued. And so um, it's given everyone a little bit of time to pause and really think about what the priorities for us moving forward in the field are. Well, that's good. And great, great to hear that things are progressing. And I think we're all adjusting. I call it the, the you know, they have business as usual. This is business unusual. Um, <laughs> we're, all, we're all adapting as best as we can. Um, now, just because it's taken me, I've been involved for seven years now, and it's been a massive learning curve for me coming from outside of, of medicine, outside of research, really thrust into a whole new world. And I know many of our donors are similar. They believe in research. They uh, think it's great that research happens because we've seen so much success with breakthroughs in other diseases that only would have happened with research. But can you just... So starting at the beginning, so you're, you're in more of what, you know, people say basic research or discovery research. So the things you're trying to understand will then, you hope, lead to a clinical trial, which then you hope will lead to some new standard of care. I, I guess that's sort of a very simple way. But how do you, so can you just describe discovery research and also how do you get an idea and then make it something that you actually want to explore in your lab? How does that process work? Um, That's a great question. So discovery research to me is really about understanding um, how something happens and why it happens. Um, And so in the context of childhood cancer, it's um, what, what causes the disease in the first place and then what causes it to continue to grow. And these are, it's really, they're really fundamental questions. Um, But, you know, I honestly believe that if you can, if you can identify the reasons that these tumours start and understand why they continue to grow, then I think you're really well placed to, to devise strategies to stop those things happening. And so um, that would ultimately result in you hopefully finding a therapy that would be effective. Um, So I think that's what discovery research means to me. Um, And then obviously the next step is then to translate that research into the clinic in a clinical trial and hopefully um, an effective therapy. So how do we get at the questions that we address in the lab? It's, I mean, first and foremost, it's a, you know, we're in an area that we're extremely passionate about and we want to make a difference. So I think that's number one, because you have to be passionate about what you're doing because it can be difficult at times. And then number two, we ask what are the really important questions? And and we get help in answering that because we have some terrific clinical collaborators. Um, and at the Hudson, I have um, you know great relationship and access to the, the Monash Children's Cancer Centre uh, led by Dr. Peter Downey, 
Um, so the, the Monash Children's Hospital is on the same side as the Hudson, so that makes things very easy. And, you know, uh, Peter and, and his team, they see patients every day. They, they know where the gaps in our knowledge and, um, and treatments are. And so that helps to frame the really important biological questions that we can ask. Um, and so it's really in collaboration with the clinical staff that we, we come up with important questions. And then um, on the lab side, we design the experiments appropriately so we can answer those questions. Um, and then once you kind of start doing that, it's, it's the whole thing just keeps evolving. It's just, it keeps moving forward and evolving and, and you acquire data and then your next step and next question that you ask is then based on the data that you've just generated. So you can often move into very different directions based on different data points taking you in that way. And, and sometimes you can end up in places that you never expected to end up when you first started the project, but that's, that's really cool. And Jason, how do you know what you're, you know, if you're thinking about something here in Australia, is it sort of likely that your cohorts here in, in Canada at the sick kids hospital are thinking about it at, uh, you know, the DFK said in Germany at St. Jude's in, in Memphis in the US. So how, how do you know, do you work in isolation or do you try to do, take a different tack than somebody else's? So you're trying to have a new perspective on a problem? Yeah, so I think you, you don't wanna replicate uh, what somebody else is already doing. I think that's just a waste of everyone's time and resources, but um, it doesn't mean that you can't be involved in that project. And so um, I think, Pediatric neuro-oncology as a field is quite small um, and there's many meetings that we have where we can interact with our colleagues overseas and we can hear what they're doing. Um, you know, there's a, really a lot of goodwill um, in this field and, and people are all in it for the one reason and that's to make a difference to, to clinical outcomes. So people are really happy to share what they're working on at the moment. There's, there's not a lot of secrecy and so you get to hear, you know, data that's hot off the press. So you kind of know what other labs are doing. Um, and if you think that your work fits in with theirs, then you collaborate. And everyone is really happy to co collaborate because we, we all understand that in such a small field, uh, working on rare diseases where there are limited patients, limited resources, we actually need to work together uh, in order to progress things as quickly as possible. And, and how, so how, does, how does that work with IP though? Because uh, isn't a lab's value or a researcher's value, and, and again, I'm new and, and trying to figure this part out, but isn't it sort of on the papers you publish and your names? How does that whole thing work? So is it sort of a balance between trying to collaborate, but also then trying to have an edge within your area or how do you what what are your thoughts yeah no so so it is it's a it's a bit of a balancing act so um i i think when it comes to publications uh as i said before there's such a there's so much goodwill in the in the field that people really want their data to be moving the field forward so um people are happy to collaborate and be on each other's papers um, and if you can contribute to someone else's work, they, 
very kindly acknowledge you uh, in their publications and, and vice versa. So I think, you know, people are really happy to do that. And within this field, you often see papers. In fact, you rarely see papers where it's a single lab that's generated the data and published. Um, it's, it's just too difficult to do with the limited resources. Um, and IP, IP is an interesting one because that's something we, we traditionally didn't really give a lot of thought to, but now labs are, are having to. Um, but if there's something that's potentially, that has some value, commercial value in what you're doing, um, you, you can put, you know, collaborative research agreements in place with your collaborators. So, so it's not prohibitive in collaborating. It just means that you might need to formalize the, the collaboration um, a little bit more carefully. Uh, but, but it's a really collaborative field. And, and as I said before, it, it's essential that it's like that in order to, to move things forward as rapidly as possible. One of, one of the things, and, and for the people listening, one of the recent things that we've begun funding at the Hudson Institute is a project we've, we've named it after a, a young boy who lost his life, who, whose family is involved with us, Alfie Chivers, and it's called the CRISPR Project. Can you explain that in layman's terms? Sure. Um, so what, the, what that technology is and what the research we're funding, what we're hoping to get out of this. Sure. So, so Alfie's project, uh, you know, the, the main goal of, of Alfie's project is to understand the, the drivers of childhood brain tumours. And, um, and atypical teratoid rhabdoid tumour, ATRT, is, is one of those that we're particularly interested in. And, you know, the, the main technique that we're utilising in this project, as you said, Liz, is the CRISPR-Cas9 technology. So this is a, this is a really interesting technology. Um, you know, it was kind of adapted from a bacterial immune defence system, um, and we can now utilise it in, in patient cells uh, in the lab. And essentially it involves this protein called Cas9, but it's like a, this protein is like a pair of scissors. I think that's the best way to describe it. So I've actually, so it's like this, this is my Cas9 protein. And we can direct these scissors to different parts of the human genome, specifically to a specific gene that we're interested in. We can direct this, these scissors and it will actually cut the DNA. It'll cut that particular gene. And then this cell will try and repair that DNA. But because we've made a cut, it's damaged a little bit of the DNA on either side of the cut. So when the DNA is rejoined, it's not exactly the same as what it was before. And because it's not the same, it therefore affects its function. So uh, using the particular technologies we're using, we're actually making that cut. And when it rejoins, we're losing the function of that particular gene. And so we can interrogate any gene in the human genome, all genes in the human genome, at the same time in different cells and determine how important that individual gene is for that particular cancer. And is that what you were talking about when you were saying really what is causing the disease to begin with? Is this trying to get at that and digging yeah. deep into, so are you thinking that many of these pediatric brain tumors are genetic in nature versus environmental? So, um, so some of them are 
genetic. They have, you know, um, very specific mutations that are only seen um, in, in those particular tumours. Um, some of them are likely epigenetic. Um, so that is kind of a, a change to the function of genes that's not moderated by uh, a mutation. Um, and so using these CRISPR technologies, what we can do is we can determine the importance of, as I said, any gene. And it may be that that gene is part of a important pathway that's been upregulated within that tumour. And that upregulated pathway may be the result of a, a mutation downstream. But if we can find which genes are required for the growth of that tumour, then hopefully we can, we can correlate that gene with a potential drug that's already developed. And if that drug is known to inhibit that gene that we can show is essential for the growth of the tumour, then very quickly, we may have found a potential therapy to treat that particular tumour type. And really that's the goal of, of the project. So this, this project, so the CRISPR project will identify these uh, is it targets within the gene? Or yeah, so we'll say we like to call them dependencies. So genetic dependencies. So genetic that means, dependencies. Yeah. Once they're identified, then is that like phase two is to then try to find drugs that might be able to target them? Yeah, so it's so it's phase it's phase two in a sense, but we can actually do it simultaneously because whilst we're doing a CRISPR screen on these cells, we can also do a drug screen on the cells. And so we can kind of meet at the top and then, you know, uh, match up the CRISPR screen with the drug screening data and show that when we delete this particular gene, we kill the cells. When we treat the cells with this particular drug, we kill the cells. And what do you know, this particular drug inhibits this particular gene. And so that's one way of doing it. Um, or we can follow it up uh, in a phase two type approach, as you just said. Okay, and this is interesting for us because two years ago, we were introduced at the Hudson Institute to a group that is, uh, it, it, it was the, the Children's Brain Tumor Tissue Consortium. They've renamed or rebranded the Children's Brain Tumor Network. And how, and for us, we were excited. I, I think many people know we, we, I'm American, you can hear it from my accent, uh, but I've lived in Australia for 20 years, but we have our foundation in both countries, which we're proud of. It's, it's, it's really celebrating Connor's legacy. He really was a boy of two countries. Um, so when we met the people from the CBTN, we were excited because we liked to have that collaboration for us as a foundation between the two countries. And then obviously they've, they've, you've become quite involved with them. Can you describe how that relationship works? Um, so for those who don't know the CBTTC or CBTN now, so Children's Brain Tumor Network, which is what they're about to be rebranded as, um, it's really a, a huge collaborative effort um, run out of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Um, so they've collected thousands of um, childhood brain tumour samples and they've done an enormous amount of characterization of those samples looking at you know the different mutations within each sample um, and various other uh, analyses and it's completely collaborative so they give that 
they give the tissues to other research labs, all the data they've generated to other research labs. And the purpose of it is to fast track individual researchers' projects um, with, with large amounts of data from rare tumours. So as I mentioned before, resources are limited. They're a network that collects all these resources together in large numbers and then provides them for researchers to undertake their projects. And so uh, we've been involved um, for, as you said, Liz, at least a couple of years now. In fact, um, we're one of the, the member sites of CBTN, um, of which there's about 18 internationally at the moment, and that continues to grow. Um, and we receive cell line models from, from CBTN with which to undertake um, our CRISPR analysis as part of uh, Alfie's project. Um, and along with those cell lines, we also get really important information about the cell lines. So which mutations these particular patients have, what gene expression patterns they have. And so all of that information is really important in correlating it with our, our own experimental uh, CRISPR data. So when you're, when you're working with them, do you, so yes, you're using their data, but do they know what project you're undertaking so then that in essence becomes collaborative where they know what you're working on and then another group might be working on another sort of angle is that yeah. is that how it works yeah absolutely so they have a, a really streamlined application process to get their their data and samples and so that goes through a scientific committee that uh, that coincidentally i'm a part of um, not that I would assess my own research projects, but um, but we we get to see everyone on the committee gets to see what projects the you know the network is supporting, um, and then uh, there's regular meetings. So the scientific committee meets uh, every three months. Uh, there's a PI meeting every month, um, and then they have an annual meeting where people who are undertaking uh, CVTN collaborative projects will come and present their data and this is um you know research in progress presentations it's not it's not necessarily finished projects it's this is what we are doing and this is where we're up to so so it's a very transparent um collaborative process and jason obviously then the work i've got two questions one is the work they're doing and the work you're doing then would feed into clinical trials and i know that they've got a strong alliance with PNOC which is the Pediatric Neuro-Oncology... Yeah, the, the Pacific Pediatric Neuro-Oncology Consortium. Consortium, okay. Yeah. So, and I know Australia is starting to become involved with that as well, which is another form of collaboration. And also from our foundation, we're funding work that's part of PNAC in the US, but now it's, it's working from, from the Australia side as well. Yeah, exactly. And so... So that's, a, I guess, if you look at the, the CBTN and PNUC now have a, a really terrific relationship because um, I guess CB, CBTN is really facilitating the discovery research and PNUC is really driving that discovery research into clinical trials. And, and as you said, there's a number of partners in Australia um, with PNUC um, and more recently, they've developed within PNUC these, these disease-specific working groups. And these are collaborative working groups on a specific brain tumour type. 
Um, and these working groups have regular meetings. Um, I'm part of the, the diffuse midline glioma working group. We meet every fortnight. We oh, have a- That's incredible. And I heard they've just, they've just started one for a pendymoma as well, which is the tumor yep. that Connor had. And again, for our listeners, this is super complex. There are, from last count, over 140 subtypes of different tumor types, which I think can be sort of bucketed into maybe five or six sort of main types. But then as you were talking originally about how you can classify them into these subgroups, it starts becoming really complicated. Absolutely. And, and the, the beauty of these PNUC working groups is that with regular meetings, it's people presenting their, their data as it comes to hand. And so this is, a, this is a really brilliant example of how collaborative research can progress into a clinical trial. And, and it's really aimed, these working groups are really aimed at, at collaborative work. So instead of five labs doing the same thing, you know exactly what everyone's doing and you say, hey, I can actually do this. This is my expertise. How about I do this? And that will complement what you're doing and together we're gonna to get um, to the end game much quicker. Jason, there's a lot of talk about precision medicine. You, you hear it not just within pediatric brain cancer, but you hear it with anybody who's getting a disease. Can you just very simply let people know what, what is precision medicine and, and how is it working in the pediatric brain cancer space? Sure, so um, basically precision or personalized medicine is, is adapting a treatment to that specific individual. So instead of someone diagnosed with um, a particular brain tumor coming in and receiving um, just normal, you know, just everyday treatment that may or may not work, um, that particular patient's tumor is is um, studied and we try and work out or, or it's it's established what the unique you know genetic mutations in that tumor by, might be um, and trying to match those unique features of that patient's tumor to a therapy that is most likely going to work in that patient and so the idea of that is that patients will receive firstly treatments that are likely to benefit the patient and also hopefully not receiving uh, treatments that are not likely to do anything but might have um, side effects. So, so that's really the, the brief uh, explanation of that. Now, I, I mean, there's lots of ways that this is evolving in, in childhood brain tumors at the moment. I think one of the, one of the key features, uh, one of the, the most obvious um, ways at the moment is the AIMBRAIN study, uh, which you know a lot about, Liz. And this is the methylation profiling of every childhood brain tumor in Australia and New Zealand. And that information tells uh, the clinicians the exact molecular subtype of that particular tumor. And as you said, Liz, there's, there's all these different types of brain tumors. And within these different types of brain tumors, there's all these different types of molecular subtypes. Um, and that means that those subtypes are driven by different genetic mutations or different activation of pathways. And therefore a specific subtype might benefit better from one therapy versus another subtype, even though they're under the, under the umbrella of the same disease. And I think that's the best example of how precision medicine has evolved over the last kind of 18 months to two years in, in that space. Um, and then it's been refined more and more and more as we as we move along. 
Well, we were, we were, that, that was in terms of my proudest moment was when we were able to really get behind the AIM Brain Project and be a, be a primary funder and really help bring that to fruition because it really is sort of a base for then all this other research and, and everything to, to stem from, from there. Um, now, Jason, we, we just have uh, another minute or so, and I'd like to end these, our, these little interviews, these in-depth, and you've been so informative. I hope people have enjoyed it as, as much as I have. I just wanted to leave with, what are your greatest hopes for, you know, when you see, I know you work with um, Dr. Peter Downey and, and he's in the front line dealing with the patients and the parents, but from your perspective, you, you said you're so passionate. So what, what is it that makes you passionate and what are you hopeful for? Um, what makes me passionate? I, I just, I mean, I have kids of my own and, and, you know, I, it kills me to think that parents and, and families and children have to go through what they have to go through. Um, and it, it's, it's terrible that, you know, we haven't advanced this area in pediatric brain tumor therapies as, as much as other cancer fields have been advanced. So, um, you know, my, my hope is that um, moving, you know, in the future that all patients have access to curative therapies that have no side effects. I think that's the, I mean, that's, that's the ultimate goal that we're all in this field working as hard as we can towards. And, and I think that's, that is the ideal, um, you know, situation that we want to find ourselves in. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And I know people listening will, will find it also so inspiring to know that there's people like you trying to crack this code and, and figure out how we can help these kids with such a cruel disease, as you know. Jason, thank you so much. We're very proud to fund the work that you and your group are doing, and we hope we can continue that relationship for many, many years to come. Thank you, Liz, and thanks to the RCD for all your support. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Because every little thing is going to be all right.